Good morning. We're going to go ahead and uh, get started with uh, Biblical Finance 101, hopefully the last of a four-part series. Um, so let's go ahead and get started. Um, the point, of course, is to use the Bible as our guide for how we should run our personal finances. Um, I've tried to weave in scripture and some biblical wisdom into each one of these lessons. Uh, and then there's kind of the practicality of today's you know, tax laws, et cetera, that obviously weren't in the Bible, but you have to work around those, but continue to use biblical wisdom as to how you run your personal finances. Part quatre, for those you've been following in French, un, deux, trois, quatre. Quatre, yeah. Quatre. Yeah, there you go. Cat, exactly. Um, you guys know who I am, but I put it on there for the video because these things get posted. Actually, part one, two, and three. Three just got posted. Thanks, Nate, for that. Um, so feel free to like it, uh, forward it, post it. I posted it on the church's LinkedIn, um, forward it from my LinkedIn, but you guys can forward it on um, all the other social medias that you're not supposed to have other than LinkedIn. I think we talked about that. Um, do ask questions. Uh, a lot of you have continued to come up uh, after uh, the session or during the week to ask me uh, questions, to send me your resumes, to do mock interviews, to ask about finances. Please continue to do that. Um, it's a great joy and pleasure to be able to share some of that wisdom. Uh, and the greatest joy is actually seeing you guys take action and results coming from those actions. Um, so don't hesitate. Right? That's, you know, I give my time willingly and joyfully uh, to uh, brothers and sisters in Christ around this. This is something I've um, enjoyed doing as a mentor to a lot of people, um, but it's even greater to, joy to do it to brothers and sisters in Christ. So do not hesitate. Um, just, and you're not bothering me. You're not taking away from, actually, it's probably a good, a good distraction from my regular job is actually spend time with you guys on resumes uh, and finance and stuff like that. Uh, disclaimer, don't sue me. Um, if what I tell you doesn't happen, that's life. Um, but usually these principles over time actually do, uh, do perform quite well uh, if applied appropriately. So we talked about income. Basically, you need something to earn uh, an income, which is go get a job, get a degree, have a vocation, whatever it is. But you have to start with the top of the profit and loss statement, which is you need income. Um, so find a way to earn income. Um, tithing should be once you make money, give back to God. Um, continue to um, see that tithing has now become a reality for us as a church. Um, we're in um, decent shape financially. Um, we need to continue. But it's, uh, it's also nice to see people that have just started new jobs. I've noticed one of the first things they do is they tithe more. They tithe to their new income. And that's a blessing for the church, but it's also very biblical. Um, so it's nice to see that happen and people take action. Expenses. Um, if you aren't tracking them, you won't know. Um, I'll talk about budget a little bit again, but make sure you know how much you're spending. If you're overspending or have no clue how much you're spending, you're probably overspending, which means you're burning a hole in your pocket and you aren't saving, you aren't saving for retirement, you aren't saving for a rainy day, you aren't managing to a budget. Um, and that is the, the biggest sin is actually to not be in control of your finances. Um, and therefore you, you will un, you know, unravel financially at some point or another if you aren't controlling your expenses. Talked about debt, good debt, neutral debt, bad debt. Taxes, unavoidable, but you are legally allowed to try and avoid them by using the tax code. And we'll talk a little bit about savings, pre-tax and post-tax savings. That's what today is about. Savings, retirement, and then what's left over is what you use to have fun. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, so let's talk about savings. Bible talks about savings um, rather explicitly. Um, and it talks about saving for a rainy day. You never know what's going to happen. 
you know, another COVID type of thing happens, you lose your job, uh, another 9-11 happens, things like that that are kind of totally out of control, or you just get laid off, or somebody gets really ill or sick in the family. Things happen, and you need to have a rainy day fund, not instantly, but build it up. So you can stomach like a six-month interruption in your income. Um, putting money to work. We'll talk about the power of compound interest. Your money is actually a very active thing if you invest it wisely. It can do things without you having to do anything. It can work while you sleep. It can work while you go off and do other things and earn other income. Um, so get your money to work while you are doing other things is a very powerful tool. We'll talk about that. Um, and multiplying. Capitalism is actually um, celebrated. Um, given five talents, you come back with five, that's a pretty good return. That's, that's very, very good. Um, you're not supposed to take a talent and come back with just the one. That's actually the biggest sin out of the, th the three stories in that parable. Um, so investing and making money is not a bad thing. How you make money and what you do with the money, that's where sin sometimes comes in. But making money and multiplying uh, and investing and saving is actually very biblical. So a couple quotes here from Proverbs, um, you know, storing up, so saving, not just spending everything you have. Um, and if you spend everything you have, you will not, at one point you will run out. When you retire, when there's a cataclysmic event, when your parents get sick and you have to pay for their care, if you don't have that money saved up, what are you going to do? You, you can't just make up money or you go into debt. Um, and being diligent about this, making sure that you plan early and you stick to that plan. So try not to deviate and all of a sudden go waste all the savings that you've put aside. So um, a few key lessons that I've applied that uh, I think work quite well. Automate the savings. Don't think about it. In other words, have the money taken out of your paycheck. Have the money taken out of your bank account automatically. Automatic withdrawals, automatic deductions, automatic savings. Just do it. You go on the website and you say, take out 100 bucks every month and put it in this account. Maximize the 401k from your employer. Just put the money aside. Automatically, if you remove it from your bank account, chances are you won't spend it. If you leave it there and have to go and click and deposit it and do whatever, you'll probably forget. You'll probably overspend. So just automate everything. I call it kind of the fire and forget. Right? The money comes in, it goes off to some savings account, and you never think about it. Now, you can go check how your savings account is doing. Don't touch it. But the, the main secret, I find, is just that automation. It's a no-brainer. You literally don't have to do anything, and it happens for you. And today, with all the online banks and saving systems, you can do that. So that's the first word of encouragement is just automate it so you don't have to worry about it. Second thing, increase it annually. Every time you get a salary increase, bump up your savings, whether it's your 401k or your IRA or just after-tax money. Just don't spend the extra money if you can. I mean, yes, over time, your lifestyle, your expenses will go up when you get married, when you have kids, when you have a mortgage. But try and put that extra income to work. If you get a bonus, try not to spend it. Actually, try and put that entire bonus aside, pre-tax or post-tax. And that's another good reflex is don't consume the extra income, the bonus, the unexpected windfall, some inheritance you might get, lottery winnings, whatever it is. Um, don't spend it if you can. Because that's a big chunk, and you'll see over time, those big chunks, I've done this in a, on a spreadsheet, I've tracked over time um, my job changes over the course of 30, I don't know how many years of career now, and those big bumps, if you can save a big chunk of that when you change jobs and have a big salary increase or get a big bonus, that money put to work over 10, 20, 30 years is massive, because it's a one-time event that gets the compounding of time. So every year, increase 
your savings, increase your tithing. That's another thing. Every January 1st, say, well, how much am I going to make this year? I need to revise my tithing upwards. I need to revise my savings upwards to the maximum you can. Right? So just because you make more money or get something extra doesn't mean you're allowed to spend it. You should actually save it and try and live within your means from the previous year. Um, same thing, by the way, with gifts. So if you know some benevolent grandfather, grandmother, uncle, rich uncle, whatever, gives you money, don't spend it. Save it. Right? And that's one of the great things that you know, grandparents, uncles, and aunts can do for you know, your kids when you guys have kids is 529 college saving plans or put it aside for your own retirement. But don't spend those gifts just because, ooh, you know, grandpa gave me $10,000. Don't spend it. Save the $10,000. We'll talk about optimizing pre- and post-tax savings. Um, if you recall the lesson on tithing, the difference between pre- and post-tax tithing, in one case you're giving to the church, in the other case you're giving to Uncle Sam. Who would you rather give to? Well, it's basically the same thing. Either you're saving for yourself for your retirement with pre-tax, or you're giving it to Uncle Sam. And if legally you're allowed to give it to yourself rather than Uncle Sam, I suggest you give it to yourself. And let retirement work for you as opposed to just giving it to the government, because they may give you part of it back in something called Social Security, that's not going to pay for retirement. Trust me. By the time you guys retire, it will not pay the bills. It may not even exist by the time you guys retire. <laughs> um, anything you can avoid spending on becomes savings. The opposite of an expense is saving. So if you can refrain from frivolous expenses, if you can say, hey, you know what, I really don't need that extra whatever it is, pair of shoes or, you know, hey, this pair of jeans are perfectly fine or I don't need that latest whatever, iPhone, I'm guilty, by the way. I always need the latest one. Um, I have an excuse. I used to work for Apple, so I guess I'm allowed. But um, if, you know, if you can avoid an expense, that's called savings. Think of it that way. The opposite of spending is saving. And whatever you don't spend becomes saving. Now, if you just leave it in your checking account, it's not going to do much for you. But if you invest it in you know, an IRA, a 401k, mutual funds, it will grow. As opposed to when you buy something... It immediately loses value, and eventually, you know, your iPhone dies or whatever car you buy dies. That investment is, doesn't last long unless you're buying, I don't know, silverware, jewelry, stuff that does last for a long time, and you're probably not going to sell it, so you're never going to get a return on it. Um, expensive wine might be another one, but you're probably going to drink it. So any, other, any expense usually does not have a good return on investment other than maybe housing. We, that's the one thing that actually grows quite nicely over time. And the concept of deferring gratification being able to save up for something, save up to buy that car, save up to buy that first apartment, that first house, save up for a big wedding, save up for that amazing trip, right? Deferring gratification. Don't just have the instant, ooh, I made some money, I got to spend it. If you can prevent yourself from that temptation and say, no, I'm actually going to defer the joy of spending the money to when I have enough to really have a fantastic house, car, vacation, whatever the thing is. And that concept here is very biblical, is not the instant gratification, it's the deferred gratification, waiting patiently for the right time and the right investment, the right spend. So just some basic concepts around savings that I encourage you to think thoughtfully. Yep, go ahead, Josh. Uh, so inflation on the rise. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so the, the inflation is, um, for simplistically, is when prices go up, right? The cost of living goes up, and historically, it's always gone up every year, either because of wage increases, salary increases, that increases the cost of running a business. Um, raw uh, commodities components like oil right now is like, I don't know, at a five-year high, whatever high it is, 80 bucks instead of 50 bucks. Um, so everything that derives from oil products has gone up in cost. So flying a plane... Uh, cost, tickets cost more. So inflation actually reduces the value of the money you have in your pocket. The worst investment you can make is cash today. Um, actually, it's gotten worse because inflation has increased. Now, here again, inflation right now is nothing. We're talking 4 or 5% with probably some abnormalities because of the COVID recovery. Um, but let's say it stabilizes maybe at 3 or 4. Um, back in the 70s, when I was, maybe, I was a little bit younger than some of you guys, um, we had 17, 18, 19% inflation. I mean, like third world country inflation, it was insane. You had two oil shocks. In, I mean, interest rates were to buy a house was like 15% mortgage rates, which is insane today. They're like two or three. Um, so our inflation is very tame. And most central banks around the world really want to contain it between two and three, which is kind of the ideal, um, which is kind of GDP growth, et cetera. Um, but inflation means that the value of money you have in your pocket um, diminishes. So you don't want to have too much money um, burning a hole in your pocket because it just loses value. So you want to invest it. But to your point, Josh, you also need some liquidity. Liquidity means cash that you can go spend. So my suggestion is to, once you have a budget, you know what your cash needs are and have about that much readily available and everything else you invest. If you have too much cash, the most liquid would be a money market account, but you're going to get maybe 1%, which is better than zero or better than zero point something. Um, you can, there, there are some things that are tax efficient. The issue with investing is um, in stock is that you're going to pay capital gains. Um, it's liquid because you can buy and sell stocks quickly, but you're going to pay tax on the, the capital gains there. Um, so there are ways around it. T-bills, I mean, there, there are some very liquid and decent returns for cash, um, but it's hard to find. It is hard to find. Um, so the, the goal is if you have a budget, you should know roughly how much cash you should have on hand and everything else should be pushed away to savings as, as best possible. So I'm going to use a similar chart to the tithing one. If you remember, I think it was lesson two on tithing. I'm going to go through what does it look like if you save for retirement or um, whatever, or college, if you save pre-tax or post-tax. Um, so we'll start with you're not saving at all. So you make $100 of income, right? You're not doing any pre-tax saving. You're going to pay Uncle Sam 30% tax rate. Let's assume that you have you know, a 20% federal, 10% state, municipal, et cetera. So you give $30 away. You're left with 70 because you haven't made any after-tax savings. So the bottom line is you have zero savings. You've given 30 bucks to Uncle Sam, and you have 70 Not a good scenario, but that's kind of the base scenario. If you do no savings, pure post-tax, that's what it looks like. We do pre-tax savings, which are the best, because you give to yourself first and not to Uncle Sam. So in this case, $100, you save 10% of that. You put $10 aside to your IRA, which is your retirement account, or to your 401k, or whatever the account is that's pre-tax. You then pay taxes 30% on what the balance is, so the $90, 100 minus 10. You pay 27 in taxes to Uncle Sam. You don't make any after-tax savings. You end up with $63 in your pocket. You've saved 10 that you haven't paid taxes on, and you've only given Uncle Sam 27. Now, that 10 here that you've paid pre-tax, depending on where you invest it, you may never pay taxes on it. You may pay taxes on it way down the line, which is great because 
the part that you would have paid taxes today, that part actually gains interest. You've deferred the taxes, but you haven't given it to the government yet. Anything you can hold in your accounts is better because you will get a return. The government will not give you a return. It's not their job, right? So pre-tax savings are the ideal savings. And that's what an IRA, uh, a pre-tax IRA is. It's what a pre-tax 401k is. 401k is what your employers usually offer. For teachers, it's 403bs. It's the same plan, basically. You can put a certain amount. Um, 401k is up to 19,500 or 600, I think is the limit today. And when you're over 50, you can actually put 26,000. So maximize your 401k. We'll talk about that in a moment. But that's pre-tax. So it's money that you don't pay taxes on until way, way down the line. And way down the line for many of you is 40, 50 years from now. That's great. 40 years of not paying taxes on stuff and paying it then, who knows what your tax rate is then, but it doesn't really matter. Not paying it for 40 years is the best thing you can do. IRA, same thing. Now there are post-tax savings we'll talk about right now. So post-tax, you have the 100, you pay your 30 in taxes up front, and then you do 10% of what's left. So you save $7 and you look at the math, you've saved seven, you've paid Uncle Sam 30. Not as efficient. The positive here is that you've already paid taxes on the seven. So you will never pay taxes on that ever again. So that's what they call Roth 401ks or Roth IRAs, which is, and that's actually something I would encourage um, younger people with lower tax rates to do because you're paying a low tax rate now versus who knows what your tax rate will be later, right? 40 years from now, you may be making a ton of money. The tax laws will have changed and your tax rate may not be 30. It could be 50. Do you want to pay 50, 40 years from now? That's a lot versus pay now at, let's say you're at, maybe a 15% tax rate, pay it now and you never have to pay those taxes again. So early career, low tax rates, it's actually a very good thing to start what's called the Roth 401k or Roth IRA. And if your employer allows you to do a Roth 401k, um, I mean, talk to me first, but I'd, I'd encourage you to consider that and definitely do a Roth IRA early in your career. And Roth is R-O-T-H, it's the, the law, well, the, the alternative to a standard IRA um, so this is the, the math, and you see it just as powerful as tithing. Ideally, if you can, you do both pre- and post-tax. So you maximize the pre-tax savings, you max out your 401k, you max out your IRA, and you save after tax. So ideally, you're doing both scenario two and three, because you give less money to the government, you save more for yourself, you maximize the tax efficiency, and you save for retirement. Right? Same principle as tithing, you do the same thing here. Now, tithing, you can do pre- and post-tax tithing. I would encourage you to do just nothing but pre. But when it comes to saving, there are limits, right? 401ks have a limit. IRAs have an annual limit. The IRA limit is $6,500, I think, um, for people over 50. I think it's 5,500 for under 50. Um, so you want to max those out, right? And that here again, once you put it in an IRA or 401k, you can't touch it. That's great. Because the temptation to pull it out it might be there, but you can't touch it. You can, but there are penalties, so you don't want to do it. So the benefit of putting it there is you fire and forget, and you will never touch that money until you retire. And it just stays there. And money you don't have in your checking account is money you will not spend. So I encourage you to take scenario two and three um, and save as much as you can pre-tax and save as much as you can after tax and give as little as you have to to legally still pay your taxes. But do everything you need to do to pay you know, your tithes and offerings and save for yourself. Don't do the first one because that will lead to disaster very quickly. And it, you, know, you don't have to save thousands, thousands of dollars every month. It can start with 100, start with 150, start with whatever. But start is the encouragement. And start the pre-tax, 
because that's the most efficient thing you can do now. And given the benefit of age and time you have, many of you have ahead of you, that's the most efficient way of saving. Things you need to save for, big investments, right? So a car, not that anybody really needs a car in New York, but some people do. Um, thank goodness the salaries have a car, because right? <laughs> that's like the church's car. Uh, <laughs> should be a tax deduction for that thing right there, I'm sure. If we should work on that. Um, but one day you may need a car. Those are not small investments. And you can lease a car, you can buy a car, but those are usually one of the bigger investments that one makes uh, in life. Kids college, we'll talk about that in a moment. For those of you who are about to have kids, have kids, plan on having kids, college is ridiculously expensive and will be even more ridiculously expensive when you guys have 18-year-olds about to go off to college. You have to start saving the day they're born, and I'm not kidding, and I'll talk about that in a moment. A house, at some point, you will want to own, not just rent, um, so owning an apartment, owning a house, and you're going to inevitably have to get a mortgage on that, but you have to put the down payment, and the down payment is usually 20%, 20 to 50% of the value of the home. Well, you better have that money saved up somewhere to be able to put that in front of the bank and say, please give me a loan for the other part that I can't afford right now. And then retirement, something that most people don't think about, but it will happen. I'm closer to retirement than everybody, almost everybody here. Um, and it's maybe 15 years away from me. I'm, thank goodness we started working on that. Wish I'd started some of these lessons much earlier. That's part of the wisdom is I didn't do everything here that I should have done. Um, you have the benefit of being able to start much, much earlier. And retirement will happen, whether it's at 60, 65, whatever the age, retirement age is when you guys retire. But you need to have that money because your income will stop. And you can't rely on your kids to you know, subsidize you. You can't rely on winning the lottery. You're going to need income to pay for all of life's necessities, and usually health bubbles up to the top of the list when you get older. Right? If you have kids or are planning on having kids or about to have kids, you must start what's called a 529 plan. 529 just happens to be the tax code thing. It's a college savings plan where you put after-tax money, though you've already paid taxes on it, you or the grandparents or whoever, the uncle, can put money into this account. It's under the child's name, and you do it literally the day they're born or like the week they're born, you start it, or you get it ready before they're, they're born, and it gets invested in the stock market. And you can choose different funds, mutual funds, et cetera, et cetera. You can put a lot of different things in there. Um, we put ours with Vanguard, which is a very well-known financial institution, and they have 529 plans that are very um, easy. They're age-defined uh, plans. In other words, when the kid is between the age of zero and like 15, it's super aggressive on stock. Because historically, stocks have done well. Now, you have ups and downs, 2008, March of 2020, where stocks take a 30% you know, plummet. But over time, stocks have outperformed almost every other asset class that you have access to um, with these types of um, college plans. So it's very aggressive, which means it's going to give you the best return. And then it tones down the aggressiveness between age 12 and 15, and then 15 to 18, it actually goes really conservative. So it invests in things like bonds, which are a guaranteed return, low, but guaranteed, because guess what? At age 18, you're going to start to spend that money. So what you don't want is like a 2008 crisis to happen the first year your kid's about to go to college, and all of a sudden you've lost 30% of your college fund. So those plans do it automatically, which is wonderful. You put the money in, you don't have to think about it. It knows the kid's age, and they, li they literally rebalance the account based on the age of the kid because they know when the kid's going to go to college, which is 18 usually. And then between 18 and 21 or 22, whenever they're in college, they don't risk anything because they know you've got those bills. 
So investigate these. Uh, Vanguard has a great set of plans. They're not the only ones. Almost every big financial institution has 529 plans. But do this the minute you are planning on having a kid, about to have a kid, get the paperwork done, go explore these. Um, they're wonderful. Because it just saves automatically. The grandparents can put money in there. There are some tax limits, but um, a gift that the grandparents can give is just put $10,000 in the account in the name of the kid. And that, over 18 years, will end up paying for four years of college. So this is something, and do it for each kid, not just one. Do it for each kid, right? Um, there's another type of savings you can do for your kids. Um, once you've saved for yourself for your retirement, uh, something called the UGTM, Unified Gift to Minors. You can start saving for your kids. Um, here again, very tax efficient. When they turn 18 or 21, it becomes their money. And hopefully they're not foolish and not going to go out and waste it on something. But it's a way for you to pass money down to the next generation in a very um, tax efficient way. Um, and it's invested aggressively. Here again, compounding over 18 or 21 years um, will lead to you know, leaving some good money in the hands of your kids. You want to generationally try and improve the starting point of each subsequent generation. So that's another thing that you can look at. These things all pile up. You have to start with tithing, then look at your pre-tax savings for your own retirement, IRA, 401k, then your post-tax savings, all these things, 529. You start to add up. That's a lot of savings. But yes, you do need to think about these things. And that's why expense management allows you to save. If you don't manage your expenses, you don't have enough to save for all these things. But I encourage you to look at your budget and see how much can you put aside. Yep, go ahead, Josh. So the 529 plan can be used for a few things. Um, the, pre uh, the previous tax changes under the Trump administration allowed you to use $10,000 a year for um, high school, for private high school, uh, for 11th and 12th grade. So that's a change because before it was just college. So now if your kids happen to go to a private high school, and there are plenty of those here in New York that cost almost as much as college, you can use up to $10,000 a year. So that was a nice change. Um, the 529 otherwise has to be used for undergrad or graduate degrees. And it's tuition, room, board, computers, travel, things that are directly attributable to the education um, uh, expense. If you don't use it, you can hold on to it. So, for example, in our case, Matthew and James, uh, Matthew's graduated. He has some leftover money in his 529. He could use it for if he goes and gets a graduate degree. So if he goes off and tries to get an MBA, we could use it there. Um, James is still in college, and therefore there's still money there to pay for his junior year right now and next year's senior year. There, hopefully, there should be leftover money that he could then roll over to go get you know, a, a master's degree and eventually a PhD. So you can roll it over as long as it's a, um, a degree, college or above. You can, I'll give you the example in our case, if Matthew's money doesn't get used, I could roll that money from Matthew over to James. So you can roll it between siblings. And I believe you can now roll it from um, that generation to your grandchildren. So to Matthew and James's kids, that money could also be passed down without a penalty. And if that fails, so if you don't have that option, you can pull it out and you pay a 10% uh, penalty um, and you pay the taxes. Right? The benefit of the 529 is you pay zero tax on the capital gains, zero, um, which is um, unheard of. Right? Um, and if you do pull it out, you pay a penalty and you pay the taxes. Which is, if you don't have any expense, it's better than just you know, leaving it there because you can't do anything with it. But that's the worst case scenario. There are plenty of outs between siblings. So if you have two kids, you can merge them. Um, you, I mean, you can hold on until somebody decides they want to go get a PhD in something. Or I believe, 
I'd have to double check, but I believe you can pass it on to grandchildren. And that usually ensures that the money will get invested in a college uh, thing. But it's, it's a wonderful plan that, um, you know, in our case, it did pay dividends because now that both of our boys were in college at the same time, we literally didn't have any out-of-pocket money. It was already saved. It was taken care of, which is a great feeling when your kid is about to go to college and you don't have to worry about college tuition because you have an account that has saved up that money. Somebody had a question? Yes, sir. I believe, I believe it's applicable to um, higher education. Um, so there, but you have to read, the, each plan has its specific um, uh, definitions, and the tax law has its own definitions. I believe certain um, non-traditional, like non-four-year college, et cetera, are also applicable, but that's something to read in the plan. What are allowed expenses? Um, and the, usually the plans have a pretty you know, lengthy kind of legal thing on here are all the types of things that qualify. So a traditional four-year undergrad college, um, community college, two-year program, the, all those things are uh, admissible. For the kind of vocational schools or trade schools, um, have to double-check if the plans allow it. And what do you need to uh, – because um, you'll get an IRS document that'll say, you took this money out at 529, um, the university XYZ reports that how much you paid in tuition, and all that has to add up. Exactly. And you have to have a, an allowable um, uh, payout. So, so when I take money out of James's 529 plan, um, I have to be able to match that with a, a bill from the college. And they'll check. It doesn't have to be like to the dollar, but it has to be pretty close. Otherwise, I, if I pulled it out and I started spending it on something else, the IRS would figure it out. And they'd say, well, you need to pay capital gains on the part that was not applied to his education. Exactly. So it's, you only get the capital gains free if you spend it on college. Um, so house apartment. So we talked about in, you know, mortgages as good debt. Um, if you buy an apartment or a house and over time it appreciates, mortgage is taxed. Some of it's tax deductible. And the asset, so the, the house that you bought, usually over time will appreciate, especially over the long term. So saving to buy a house is actually a good thing, right? You're saving, first of all, so you can put the down payment, but then you're investing in something that should appreciate over time. So that's another thing that, as opposed to a car, which does usually not appreciate over time, or most other things you might buy will not appreciate over time. Uh, a house usually will, or an apartment. Another thing, and you're going to keep saying, well, when does this list end? The list doesn't end, <laughs> right? You have to avoid the expenses so you can do all of this because this is good biblical sound financial management is when you're planning for all these things, you will lead a, uh, a simpler life um, because you plan for things, right? And this last one is, sounds maybe strange, but an emergency fund. What if something happens? Do you have, and it could be COVID, could be you know, layoff, could be world economy goes out of whack, what happens? Do you have something to keep paying the bills? Or do you get kicked out of your apartment? Can you not put food on the table? Can, I mean, do you have that buffer? Somewhat liquid, to Josh's point earlier, you don't want this to be um, tied up in something you can't sell. You also don't want it to just be sitting on a bank account, so you can, you can invest it, but do you have an emergency fund you can access if something were to go wrong? If you lose your job, somebody gets really sick, if the rent just all of a sudden increases 30%, you know, what, what's that emergency contingency fund that you have? And it doesn't mean you have to have this day one, but can you build that up over time, right? Here again, every month put 100 bucks aside, that's your emergency fund, you don't touch it. And then if you do use it, 
well, you replenish it. So get back to that three to six months of living expenses. How do you know what your living expenses are? You have a budget. So here again, if you don't have a budget, you don't know what that emergency fund should be. But that's another insurance policy that you yourself manage. If things go wrong, you should have the peace of mind to say, you know what, I can, I can weather three to six months of being laid off, unemployed, whatever. You know, I'm not panicked. I can pay the rent. I can buy food. I'll tighten the belt and other things, but at least I'm not kicked out of my apartment and don't have anything to eat. Compound interests. Um, so I love this quote from Albert Einstein, so you know, incredible scientist. And um, he actually thought that compound interest was uh, like a world wonder. He thought it was one of the coolest things out there, which is kind of strange when you think the guy, you know, relativity and equals MCU square. I mean, just real. But he actually thought that compound interest was one of the most powerful things. Um, and he actually thought it was um, a godly invention. Like the fact that that works, that compounding investing um, actually works, is incredibly powerful. Um, the beauty of it is that it allows the money you have, but the interest on the money you have, to earn interest. So it compounds, right? It piles on top of each other. And I'll give you an example in just a moment. But this money works on your behalf without you having to do anything, right? You work and you get a salary. If you invest that money and there's interest on that money, you didn't work for that interest. Somebody else did the work, right? A bank or a company, if you bought their stock, it's passive for you. And then that interest earns interest. Did you do anything for that? No, somebody else did that work. That's a beautiful thing. You're making money without having to do anything. And the money that you're making is making money for itself. That's the compounding, right? So I'll give you an example. You invest $100 at 5%, right? So what do you get after one year, right? 105, 5%, you get the extra five. Now, if there weren't compounding, you'd get $5 every year, right? With compounding, year three, you actually get 110, so an extra five, but also an extra 25 cents. Doesn't feel like much, but the 25 cents is the 5% on the extra 10, on the extra five. And you keep doing that, and do that after year 20, you have $265 versus what should have been 200, right? $5 every year should have been 200. You actually got 65 more dollars. What did you do for it? Nothing, right? It's interest on interest. And it feels small at the beginning, but it compounds. It actually grows towards the end quite substantially. So the more you save and the more the savings grow, the more you make on the compounding. That's the power of time, which most of you have. And you do this. this is, I use this example as 20 years, but you do it 40 years, 50 years, which most of you have ahead of you. It's massive. Now, take inflation, to Josh's point earlier. Inflation, so the rising cost of living, will erode this a little bit. But if you invest at, if you get 5% return, 7% return, which is the average of the stock market, or if you're very lucky, you can get much higher returns in other asset classes or in real estate, this just builds up tremendously over time. You can, more, you can double your money, triple your money if you get very high returns over a long period of time. This is what ends up saving for retirement, is when you invest for the long term sustainably and don't touch it, and it just builds and it snowballs. Right? That's the compounding. So realize that the biggest asset you have is time for the younger generation here. Start now. Yes? Mm-hmm. 
Um, well, so first of all, your first point is, remember, if year one you invested 100, year two, you invest, I mean, you keep investing $100, so every year you, you have 100, then 200, 300, so every year you're putting in more. Um, to my point earlier, you should have a budget and figure out what can you, uh, what is your expense burn rate and everything you don't spend, that's your savings. The following year, if you have a salary increase or a bonus, try and take all that extra and save it and do that every single year. So I guess the percentage changes over time if you're um, smart about it try and contain your expenses and put all the extra income that comes in to work for you. Now, you can't do that all the time because when you get married, have kids, get a mortgage, your lifestyle, your expenses go up. But every time you have something that's kind of out of the ordinary, put it aside. So over time, you should be increasing the percentage, right, as best possible, right, and maximize it without, you know, making life unfun, right? You still want to have a little bit of fun, but maximizing the percentage and increasing it over time. Especially if you want to start adding these line items, right? You may not start a 529 plan right now because you don't have a kid. Right? You can't actually start one until you have a kid. So that one's you don't have to do. Unified gift to minor, you don't have one right now. So you don't have to worry about that. But start all the other ones, 401ks, IRAs. And as your income increases, start adding more savings, more plans, more things you can invest in. Right? So key thing about savings, invest them, don't touch them. Don't mess with them. Don't mess with the emergency fund. Don't mess with 529s, with IRAs, 401ks. The beauty is tax-wise, you shouldn't because they will penalize you if you actually take them out. Um, so they're, they're definitely locked up. But even other savings, after-tax savings you put to work in the stock market or in some account, try not to touch them. It's tempting to say, oh, I really need whatever. I'm going to go tap into my savings. Resist the temptation. Don't tap into the savings. Let them run the length of the 30, 40, 50 years you have ahead of you. Yeah, again, I'm not giving um, investment advice, but stocks happen to be the, the asset class that works the best for the long term, and everyone has access to them through brokerage companies, so Fidelity, Vanguard, E-Trade, all these other companies. Um, so you have access to the stock market, right? And that has been historically and should be historically one of the best asset classes to invest in for the long term. Real estate might be in there, but here again, you're not going to buy a ton of real estate. You're going to buy probably your home, your apartment. But stocks is usually where you invest your IRA, your 401k, your 529 college savings plans. And over the duration, that has proven to be historically the best asset class. Now, you may have, you know, later in life, you may have access to other asset classes. I don't know, um, precious metals, um, uh, art. Pardon me? Crypto, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, private equity, venture capital, hedge funds. Okay, that's complicated. If, if you have those problems, those are good problems to have. Um, but for the majority of people in the world, and certainly in the United States, it's stocks, right? And some bonds, et cetera. And if you want to talk about that, we can do that offline. But think of that's where your money needs to be invested. Don't leave it in a bank account at 0%, right? Because you're actually losing money. Cash is the worst place to have your money. Yes. So you can invest in um, precious metals in mutual funds that usually are an aggregate of either companies that are mining, gold, silver, et cetera, or um, uh, funds that are actually uh, uh, an alias of gold prices, silver prices, copper, whatever. So you can, probably a little speculative, but that's something you can talk to a financial advisor about. I wouldn't put all my money just in precious metals, but you know, it's, it's an asset class, um, just like art. I mean, you can buy, you know, a Picasso or a Van Gogh and see how that appreciates over time. Not very liquid, <laughs> but looks cool on a wall. <laughs> um, 
what I like about mutual funds, so mutual funds are basically you give your money to a Fidelity, a Vanguard, one of these, and they invest it in a pool of stocks. And they have uh, investors that actually do all the homework and they take a fee for all their homework, but they do the picking of the stocks. They do the buying and the selling, right? And so you can buy what's called like a, a large cap mutual fund. Large cap is large capitalization. So that's large companies. So the apples and whatever's of the world, you can buy a mid cap, a small cap, an international fund, a China fund, a green fund. And they basically, they pick all the stocks and they have a theme to them, right? And you can pick those or you can let them pick them, but they're, they're nice because they're kind of fire and forget. You don't have to do any homework. You don't have to be a stock expert. You don't have to know anything about crypto. Um, just let them pick the mix, right? And they're pretty good at it. Is, are you maximizing things? Eh, maybe not, but you just don't have the time nor the expertise. So let the experts do it. You pay them a fee. And the Vanguards and the Fidelities of the world have very reasonable fees. I think Vanguard is one of the lowest fees out there. Um, and they do a really good job. Right? And you're not going to be an expert. Unless you're in the finance world, you're not going to be an expert at picking which stock, which mutual fund. Yeah, Eric. So, like, obviously, there's more support in the sector. I also am not a financial advisor. But I'm just Yeah, and that's you know if you're if you follow this stuff uh, as I know Eric does given given his profession, um, yes, you want to try and time so you're not buying when everything's at an all time high. If you're doing this over 30, 40 years, it'll probably be okay. But you know if you have a big chunk of money, don't put it in like when a stock is hitting its all time high. I mean, at least think about it. Um, and here again, the market dips, and that's always a great time to buy if you have that option. When the market's at an all time record, probably not the best time to throw all your money at it. But then again, over time, 30, 40 years. That kind of evens out. But here again, if you're not into stock picking or timing, don't do it. Let somebody else do it for you. And that's where the regular savings coming out of your checking, uh, out of your uh, paycheck, just let them figure out the timing, right? That's what they're paid to do. Um, but if you want to get into it, yes, you definitely, had you invested in January versus March, yeah, March was, an all, was a low. A lot of people invested at that point when they had the means to do it, and they made a lot more money. Yeah. Um, clearly talk to a financial expert. You know, a mix of stocks and, and funds. You want to have them tax optimized. You're not paying taxes uh, if you don't have to. Um, so something here again to talk to a tax advisor or a financial advisor, um, so you aren't paying uh, undue fees and undue uh, taxes on this stuff. Um, there's a risk profile, and I talked about this. When you're young, you can be a lot riskier with your investments and not worry about the price of this stock or this mutual fund every single day because over 30, 40 years, it doesn't really matter usually unless the company goes bankrupt. Um, but here, this is you know something fire and forget. Let somebody else do the advising and let them invest it for the long term. And that's that's really the the best thing you have is time, right? And you'll be grateful forty years from now. You'll think back and say, "Ooh, thank goodness I started saving when I was twenty or twenty two, uh, or about to have a kid and started that five twenty nine plan." It was twenty years goes by fast, and all of a sudden the college bills show up. So start early. 
And yeah, stock picking, unless you're in the market or know what you're doing with crypto, it's speculation. It can be fun, but you could lose everything. You're probably not going to lose everything if you put things in a mutual fund. Actually, I don't think any mutual fund has gone belly up um, or any like standard one. So if you're going to go play with this, do it knowing that it's gambling. Um, you can make a ton of money, but probably not where I'd put my retirement money, probably not where I'd put the college money, uh, unless you really know what you're doing. Right? So word of advice. Yes, sir. You, you can, I mean, at the end, the same for me, it's almost the same thing, right? Um, I call them mutual fund ETFs. Um, here again, talk to a financial advisor, but picking individual stocks is you really have to know what you're doing. Um, or you can just say, oh, I like, you know, Nike, Apple, Coca Cola, et cetera. You can do that. But um, better, I think it's better to pick either a theme. I want this type of fund or this um, type of, uh, uh, of mutual fund, and I'm comfortable with that, or let the advisor make the suggestion, right? So quick math, and we'll, we'll wrap up on, uh, on this. So I guess maybe we will have part five. <laughs> um, just to give you an idea of college, so a standard four-year um, undergrad college, private school, um, will cost half a million dollars per kid. That's the math. You look at the, the inflation on tuition, you look at college's cost today, it will cost you half a million bucks per kid of after-tax money. So if you have two kids, it's a million bucks. Four kids, two million bucks. Of money you have to have on top of all your other expenses, right? And that's just tuition, room, and board. So when you have kids, you have to start thinking about this stuff. Not to mention diapers and baby food and all the other stuff. But college in the United States, we're probably the most expensive kind of college country in the world, this is what it's going to cost. Now you can say, well, my kid's not going to go to college. Probably not the right choice. My kid's not going to do a private college. That's actually probably a smart choice. If you can do in-state, and if you're in the UC system or the New York system, you can get fantastic education in the UC system and pay in-state tuition, which is maybe half. But it's still half. Right? It's still $250,000 that you have to come up with. If you work hard, you'll get you know, scholarships. If you work hard and you can get financial aid... But if you have to pay it out of pocket, this is what it's going to cost you. Thus, the 529 plan. So if you're about to have a kid or if you have young kids, start thinking this is how much it's going to cost. So do it because it's tax-free. So you ride the market for 18 years until they go to college, and that compounding will help you pay for most, if not all, of a four-year education or a two-year college education and beyond, a master's degree or PhD. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, these things get risk-adjusted. So start them when they're young because you don't really care what the risk profile is. You actually want it to be super aggressive and they will automatically change it as the kid gets older and gets closer to college so you don't lose the college fund. Um, and make this automatic. This is another one that you just put it on the auto withdrawal and it takes out 100 bucks, 500 bucks, whatever it is. The grandparents want to give a, a Christmas gift, say don't give them a toy, put some money in the college fund. Right? That's, you automate these things and just put them away for the long term. As I mentioned earlier, any excess can be rolled over to another sibling, rolled over for a graduate degree. So this money isn't lost um, unless you, you know, kind of run out of places to put it, um, but there are many, of, many exits possible for a 529 plan. And the, the new law that was enacted three or four years ago, uh, $10,000 a year can be put to a private high school. So if, if your kids go to a private high school, you can use part of this to pay for that the last two years of, uh, of high school. 
So I guess we'll wrap up and we'll have part sank, which is five in French, for those of you who've been following. Uh, and we will talk about retirement and fun and then some kind of administrative stuff that I also suggest you guys put in place. So meet me after church or ping me during the week if you want to chat about this and we'll meet next Sunday for part sank. Thank you. <laughs>